This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by PTZ Optics, helping churches live stream broadcast quality services on a budget. Visit PTZ Optics slash church makeover by November 16th to win a complete live streaming makeover for your church. It's Wednesday, October 3rd, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Tim Keller joins us to discuss the state of American politics. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. As usual, I'm also joined by Mark Galley, our awesome co-host and editor-in-chief of this publication. And more awesome and happy than ever. I just spent four days with my newest grandchild, so we have 7,000 pictures of him that will be posted online any day now. Do not follow Mark on social media. You have been warned. <laughs> okay, apparently. He's the cutest baby ever. Mark I told is also my wife that she should not leave me because it wouldn't be hard to... Uh, to go hang out with him? To, no, to f- find another uh, <laughs> potential spouse because when I carried the baby by myself around town, I had so many women stop me and want to talk. Aww. <laughs> well, let us hear more about the person we're having today, which okay. who may or may not be also a grandpa. That's true. Uh, Tim Keller is former pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and now he is full-time with Redeemer City to City Ministry. He's the author of a number of books that he's known for, uh, especially on prayer and apologetics. Uh, Most recently, the New York Times excerpted a portion of his book, The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. And the title of that excerpt gives you a hint about what we're talking about today. The title was, How Do Christians Fit into the Two-Party System? Welcome, Tim. Hi, and I am a grandfather, by the way. Oh, there you go. Of how many? Seven. Seven. Oh, I got a couple to catch up with still. Well, very cool. Tim, it's great to have you here. And, you know, I I love being joined by two grandparents. That's not why we're here, though. We're here to talk about politics. And I think this episode is going to be a really important one for all of our listeners who I have reason to believe really care about politics. Last week, millions of Americans were caught up in the Senate's Supreme Court hearings. There, psychologist Christine Blasey Ford testified that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh sexually attacked her while the two were in high school. Several hours later, Kavanaugh emphatically refuted Blasey Ford's allegations. The hearings came months after Justice Anthony Kennedy, long seen as a swing vote on the court, announced his retirement. This news prompted alarm from the pro-choice community, who feared that the new balance of the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade. Despite their fears, Kavanaugh's confirmation seemed on track until the Blasey Ford allegations went public. The fate of the Supreme Court is just the latest of political news that has exhausted the nation, which is just weeks away from midterms. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll talk about how Christians who care deeply about politics, pro-life values, and women who have been victims of sexual violence can react in a way that distinctly abides by their faith in the midst of very enervating news cycles. All right, so we have a lot to get into today, and we're really grateful that Tim can join us to talk about all of this stuff. 
I want to remind everyone who loves this podcast and supports it that, again, you can do so by donating to morect.com slash podcasts, morect.com slash podcasts. And Mark, we've talked a little bit about all the different hats that you wear with your role um, representing CT. Anything come to mind that you would, you know, most people wouldn't associate from an editor-in-chief role? Right, or they uh, they might if they think about it a little bit, but it is something that happens uh, fairly regularly. I get calls from local newspapers like the Milwaukee Sentinel, which wanted uh, insight into a, a scandal that was happening at a mega church in uh, in Wisconsin, and I get calls sometimes from the New York Times, uh, from the Washington Post, from the Wall Street Journal, saying, "Oh, this is what's going on. I hear this is what's going on in the evangelical world. Help us to understand it." So one of our roles at CT is just to help the larger culture understand the nuances of evangelical culture. And we're just desperate to help them stop using the phrase evangelicals think, evangelicals do, and recognize that we're a pretty diverse group and some pretty serious differences despite our things in common. So that's just one of our jobs here, one of my jobs. Wow, I've never heard that you say you want people to (laughs) not preach a message of evangelical unity, (laughs) but I know what you're saying. Well, yeah, you know what I'm saying about just a sweeping assertion about evangelicals or sure. new evangelicals or millennial evangelicals. They're all just such overgeneralizations. They're not really helpful. They might sell newspapers, but they're just not very helpful in trying to understand this movement. Yes. You would like more explanation about the breadth of the movement. Yeah. All right. So again, a good way to support our work here at Christianity Today and supporting this podcast is by going to morect.com slash podcasts, morect.com slash podcasts. All right, Mark. So before we chat it up right now with Tim, let's talk about our gut reaction to these hearings that happened last week and maybe kind of like the larger thing that this has kind of turned into in recent days. Yeah, as I uh, I just would check in um, every day, I check into a series of mainstream news outlets and then more conservative outlets just to kind of get both sides of the picture. And it was just amazing how people were talking increasingly angrily, but over one another. And it just made me increasingly sad how this this conversation about Kavanaugh just has has degenerated. I mean, I have a I have a personal view about whether he should be approved or not. But when my son-in-law, who was deeply disappointed, he was frightened that he might get uh, appointed, said, "What do you think, Mark?" I just said, "A pox on both their houses," because I, I think they actually it's. Now, this might, might be a political view, but I actually think it's less important whether Kavanaugh is, uh, is a confirmed or not than how we go about having a conversation as a nation. I think that's the most destructive thing that happens in these moments. It makes it real difficult for have, us to have constructive conversations going forward. I also noticed people talking past each other, and it often seems like people talk past each other when they're convinced that whatever is actually going on is not necessarily exactly what's going on, but there's something that's under that's going on that's much deeper than that, and that both sides can accurately determine exactly what that thing is that is actually being talked about or at stake. So, you know, I saw many progressives suggest that this was really a litmus test for how conservatives felt about women and whether they believed women who claimed to be victims of sexual assault and um, whether or not they actually cared about this particular issue or not. And I saw conservatives who seemed to suggest that this was 
all a matter of politics um, in the sense of um, all, all everything that the Democrats had done was just shrouded in the, this type of pretense, but actually um, was about some like larger political effort, not, you know, to thwart this court nomination. And when that happened, like we've been just saying right now, this is when conversation breaks down. I would say the big gut check I had was more that I should not go on Twitter when these things are happening because I realized that I was just literally reading everybody's thoughts about this at the same time since everyone is allowed to publish exactly what they're thinking at the same right, time. And right. it was just incredibly chaotic and challenging to get to the heart of what was happening. Even though I wanted news in real time, I realized I actually didn't want news in real time because I was getting just too bombarded and overwhelmed with all the different takes and opinions, especially because of the way that Kavanaugh and Ford gave their hearings. There were there was a lot of pressure on people to give their own thoughts in a nice and tidy manner right after Ford went and then seemed things things seemed to change right after Kavanaugh went and I mean I don't know it almost felt like in the worst way <laughs> people were covering sports you know where you you want that take but you can say things a little bit more definitively I think in the sports world at times than you can in the political space yep. at least games end it is right? an interesting analogy uh, politics has become a sport in that regard all right. So, Tim, we wanted to chat with you some about the Kavanaugh hearings before we get into some larger questions about Christians in the political process. Can you tell us a little bit about how your faith has specifically informed how you have watched and observed these Kavanaugh hearings? When you see people so divided, it starts by saying, would they be saying those things about Brett Kavanaugh if he was a liberal candidate? For Would the Democrats be saying the same things if he was a liberal candidate for uh, Supreme Court justice. And then, of course, would the conservatives be saying what they're saying about Ford and about Kavanaugh if he was a, uh, would the liberals be saying something? In other words, are people really after truth or are they really basically being ideological? And a couple of years ago, I read a book, a good book by Terry Eagleton, just called Ideology. And he says the difference between a strong conviction and ideology, you know, he says ideology does sound like idolatry because it is, it's linked. Ideology says, believes in the illegitimacy of the alternative. Not that the alternative is mistaken, not that the alternative, in my view, is uh, uh, got some good points, but but, uh, overall wrong. Rather, it's just utterly illegitimate beyond the pale. And I think what's happening now is that in a situation like this, you, you, you can see people are not after truth, by and large. They are being ideologues. And so, and so they're, they're, being completely, they're looking at the situation completely controlled by their own political views, which have been raised to, I think, the level of ideology. And that basically means I don't feel like I can actually, I, I don't think I know what's going on. In other words, I feel like I'm being everything I'm seeing is so filtered by people who are looking at it ideologically that I've actually had to pull back and say, I'm really not sure I can see into this anymore. So I have become relatively undecided about what I think, because it's, 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 it's just the news media is ideological. Everybody who's making claims, I just don't believe they would be saying the same thing if the person on the other side held their view, their political view. And that's not fair. So, uh, but it's, it's happening on both sides. You read something and you know who it's by and you just go, I don't know. It's a very convincing argument, but it's by a conservative. I don't know whether to trust it. This is by a liberal. I don't know whether to trust it. So what's actually happened is, whereas I see everybody else getting so, so deeply involved and they, and they feel very strongly what they feel about it. 
it's having the opposite effect on me. In the very beginning, I started to uh, form some opinions. And then as time has gone on, as I've listened to the debate and seen the unfairness on both sides, I think, and, and how ideologically driven all the discussions are rather than a real concern to find the truth, I've just finally said, I don't even know. So, you know, I've become less, uh, less certain than I was before. I'm curious where this role of good faith comes into this, though. I understand that there is, you know, oftentimes a good reason why we get cynical about these types of things. But should we not necessarily take people at their word just because they may now be driven by ideology? I don't know that either Kavanaugh or Ford are being driven by ideology. I'm just saying everybody around them and everybody reporting on them. And I can't. And when you say, what shouldn't we take them at our word? I don't know what their words are. I actually don't know that I, I'm actually hearing them. I don't know that I really, if I was, if listen, if I was Ford's pastor, if I was Brett Kavanaugh's pastor, um, and I knew more about them and their character, and I would have a way better way of assessing the, you know, when you know somebody, uh, you feel like, okay, that fits in with what I know of their character, but I, I don't know them. So and I don't know. I, Morgan, I don't think I can just say, just take out the word, because I don't know what, I don't know that I'm actually hearing their word. I don't trust what I can know from where I'm standing. All right. Not to get all existential so early in the podcast, but if, you know, multiple of us who are part of this conversation right now are a little bit concerned about what exactly is happening in our politics right now, the truth of it, the validity of it, what are we supposed to do with that level of disenchantment and cynicism that we are experiencing? Well, here's the good thing. I'm not, a, neither you or I are, are decision makers at all. We're not being asked to make a decision. If I was in a position where I had to make a decision, I had to vote or I had to do something about it, then I would be doing everything I could to get to the bottom of things. But from where I'm standing now, I, I'm not sure why everybody on Twitter does feel like they have to come to a position. That's actually kind of new. I used to be you know, around the water cooler, you used to, you, you, you know, you did your, your your ad hoc opinion on things, but you knew that you weren't part of the uh, the process and you didn't have to make decisions. So, so anyway, I mean, if, if somebody in my church, if a woman in my church comes to me and says, this happened to me, and I'm part of needing to respond to that, uh, the church has to respond to her, I have to respond to her, then I have, then of course, I can't just sit back and say, well, who knows? But in this situation, I don't know why I have to know. Why does everybody in the whole country have to decide and argue about it when they? I don't think they're in a good position to know? So you would therefore challenge Christians who may be really tied up and involved in what's going on to maybe take a deep breath and just be okay with the not knowing. Well, no, lighten up. I mean, I do think that the uh, the conservatives that feel like this man's reputation is being destroyed and nobody's safe if he doesn't get confirmed. And more liberal people are saying, we've got to listen to women. We can't just dismiss women. She seems to be very credible. It doesn't mean you can't actually even say, if you put a gun to my head and ask me to vote, I could tell you which one I'm more favorable to. But to feel so strongly at, at this distance feels ideological to me. It's one of those questions underneath all the conversation, Morgan, you were talking about is there is this, there is a feeling at moments like this feels if this isn't decided correctly, the future of America 
or the future of something super important hangs in the balance. And I grant that the, the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty can be used as a mere cop-out to not have to address real hard issues. But I do think Christians come at these conversations with that backdrop, that uh, even if things are decided, let's say, immorally or badly, what, whatever we're talking about, we still believe that, that a sovereign God who is a God of true justice and true love is in charge and in control. And uh, we can live through periods when things aren't just going right as we think so. And I just, I wish there was, I wish I sensed, of course, I'm just listening to mostly people whose faith I have no idea about. But certainly as Christians, I would hope we would be able to have that confidence entering into these kind of conversations so that it wouldn't feel panicked and frightened and fearful and anxious. Yeah, I would agree with that. Actually, how old are you, Mark, by the way? You keep saying you're old. How I'm old an you? old guy. I'm 66. Okay, I'm 68. Okay, I'll I'll try to respect you as my elder. Well, that's well. I hope so. <laughs> but sorry, you know, you're lucky. We're not in a culture where I can do that. However, <laughs> I would say the advantage of being really old, Morgan, is, for example, when I went to college, all the professors were having sex with their with their students. And if you even said, "Hey, this isn't right," everybody said, "You're an absolute prude. Shut up." And of course, evangelicals said that, but no, you're a prude. Shut up. And the whole culture was against us. Now, 40 years later, it has turned around completely. And what the whole culture said was absolutely fine. Now the whole culture is saying this, that, that's that same, the same thing that everybody in the culture said was okay. Now, if we found out you did it, we're after you. And I'm not trying to say that that's hypocritical or anything. I'm just saying you have a rudderless culture. You know, I, I'm actually largely very much in favor of the Me Too movement because I'm a Christian. And because I think that kind of behavior that men have done to women over the years is, is appalling, but it's, it's, it's rooted in an understanding of God's justice and uh, what he says about sex and what he says about human rights and all those sorts of things. But 40 years ago, if I raised my voice and I did, or 50 years ago even, I was laughed at. So I guess what I'm saying is historical perspective says right now, everybody says this is this is an incredible moment. There's so much at stake. And the answer is 30 or 40 years from now, for all I know, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will look back and say, what the heck was that all about? It's like all that is not eternal is eternally out of date, like what C.S. Lewis said. Uh, Augustine, when I read Augustine, I realize, oh my goodness, this is the same faith that I have right now. Yet all the people he was writing against, we don't even know who they are, except he, they were written up in the city of God. The, the opposition to Christianity always comes and goes and then gets into the dustbin of history. Christianity keeps on going. So I, I look at this and say, somehow the church is going to survive. Christianity is going to survive. And so many of the things that right now everybody is so upset about will pass away and will not be problems 30 or 40 years from now. There'll be something else the world's concerned about. Now, if that sounds like an old man's cynicism, I don't think it is. I hope it's perspective. Yeah, I actually think that's kind of one of the gifts of having a faith, right, is that you have a larger backdrop and context for everything that's going on. I hope so. I'm not belittling, by the way, people. I actually think both sides that are afraid that Kavanaugh is being, you know, being destroyed politically or that uh, women aren't being listened to. And I, I am concerned on both sides. I am concerned that this actually hurts the Me Too movement in the, in the eyes of a lot of people. And I'm also concerned that the Me Too movement is being used as a weapon politically instead of really helping it move forward. So I worry about those things. But in the end, like Mark says, I, I don't know that, you know, uh, you know, God is on his throne. 
And a lot of these things, what goes around comes around. I don't know if that's the right expression. I mean, uh, the sexual libertinism from the 60s and 70s was uh, none of us could see anything but that it was going to spiral out of control and just get worse and worse and there was no hope. But one of the silver linings of a movement like the Me Too movement is that the culture is kind of awake now to the fact that sex is a pretty pretty dangerous thing and it needs to be handled carefully and ethically and properly and men need to learn to behave themselves like we Christians have been preaching for a long time. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's a very positive thing. So I know that's another thing that perspective helps with. I'm curious, as we're all here observing lots of people talk past each other, if there is some sort of responsibility that we Christians who may be aware and seeing that have in maybe facilitating or adjudicating or translating when it comes to having these conversations? For the whole world, I don't know. Because the church has got so many of its own skeletons and so much cover-up of, of sexual abuse and so on, I don't know how we could possibly adjudicate. Morgan, I don't think we can. Right now, we don't have any kind of credibility for a lot of reasons. But inside the church, here's what I like. In my own churches here in, in Redeemer is what I find that the gospel does to people is it tends to moderate their politics, because politics, if you're not a Christian, politics can actually become a religion. It actually is your meaning in life, or it actually gives you your moral authority. It can even be your identity. And when your identity comes into Christ and you begin to get the bigger perspective in politics, just, be, just you know, how without Christ, money can be your, almost like your salvation. And when you become a Christian and you get your affirmation from Christ, then money just becomes money. Same thing. Politics isn't your religion anymore. It just becomes politics. So inside the church, I have seen more liberal-leaning Christians who are concerned about women's voices and more conservative-leaning Christians who are afraid about men being falsely accused. They can have conversations because of their common appeal to the Bible as their authority and their common experience of Christ. Uh, They can actually adjudicate some of these discussions so inside the church, I actually do think that the gospel and the Bible helps liberals and conservatives bridge gaps. I'm really glad you're bringing up this idea of credibility. I am someone that strongly believes that people have to earn the right to be heard on particular issues and to particular constituencies. I think that some people might say, yes, the church's reputation has been damaged in many ways. But at the same time, if they're able to understand what is truth out there, they should still be out there saying it. Um, how might you respond to someone who says, you know, that's just an excuse that for us to just be silenced or for us not to say something? Christians have got to be able to identify themselves as Christians with their friends, their colleagues, uh, in their workplaces, their neighbors, and, and talk about Christianity. You can't let the fact that the church's loss of credibility, knowing that you, that you can't say, well, I just have to keep my mouth shut. Because uh, from the early church to today, the main way in which the church has grown and the gospel spread is basically through one-on-one conversations where Christians become vulnerable. They, they, they let people know they're Christians. And the lack of credibility the church has right now really makes that a very difficult prospect. What I'm talking about is when the church, say, as the church tries to speak publicly to social issues, I guess we do need to, but I, I think it, we have to do it with repentance you can make a case that an awful lot of the values of modern society, like human rights and so on, came from the Bible. But then at the same moment, as you are trying to say that, you've got to repent for all the ways in which the church has abused human rights. So I think the church, as the church, can speak to some of these issues, but only if it's willing to be repentant at the same moment, show that it recognizes where it hasn't lived up to its own standards. 
But here's a little move, everybody. The little move I make is when people are just trashing the Christian church, I usually say, now, so tell me what's wrong, what, what we did wrong. And then they tell you and they said, well, you didn't realize you're using Christian, Christian standards to criticize the church, which is perfectly fair to say the Christian church isn't living up to the Christian standards. But you realize that does not invalidate Christianity because you're, you're, you're using Christianity in order to trash the church, which is perfectly fair considering what we've done. But let's just say the church has to be, yeah, repent. That doesn't mean Christianity is invalid. So personally, we have to talk all the time. Publicly, we need to do it with a with our hat in our hand. For, for many of us that um, don't have as many years of experience. But are wise nonetheless. Thank you. Beyond your years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm just curious. I mean, Mark and I have had many conversations on the show about lots of different issues that are important for Christians to get involved with. So obviously, I don't want any of our listeners to come away with the sense that we don't feel like God can call people to work on specific issues. But I just would like to hear more of this tension of really trying to understand the stakes of things. You know, we live in a democracy. We do live in a place where the government's decisions do have real impact on people's lives. And we are Christians all at the same time. And so what are the proper stakes that we do accord politics? That's a great question. I'm afraid I'm going to give you a more general answer. If you go back to that article that probably was what prompted you to call me up and ask me on your podcast. Exactly. Uh, the article tried to say that on the one hand, there are Christians that say politics don't matter. You know, we're just we're just passing through and we should just preach the gospel. And I tried to say that to try to not be political is to be political. And the, the most obvious example I gave is that if you were a Christian in uh, the 1850s and you said, I'm not going to be political, to not be political is essentially to support the status quo. Because if you're not political, then you're going to just like keep things as they are, which would meant you were voting for slavery, as it were. So if you said, oh, no, we're, we're not going to be political, we're just going to preach the gospel, in the 1850s, you were actually supporting slavery. So in that sense, uh, you, I don't know how you love your neighbor without getting involved with politics. But in the end, I'm afraid I am going to be a person who says culture tends to affect politics rather than the other way around. The very idea 30 years ago of sexual harassment laws being passed, they started, I don't know when they started being passed, when people started making it illegal to do sexual harassment in the workplace. But the idea that sexual harassment was bad came from other places, and it came down into politics. It's almost like there has to be something that happens in the culture and in people's beliefs before it shows up in law. Now, I got politically involved friends who say politics also affects culture, and that's true. But probably I'm of the, the mindset that politics tends to follow culture. And therefore, I would say the academy and even the arts is probably more formative of, of human nature right now than politics so I would never want to say, oh, politics is no good. I mean, is unimportant. The stakes are there, but they're not massively high. And that's where I get back to what Mark was saying about saying, I think politics ultimately is not going to cast the die for who we are. It's, it's matters of faith and matters of belief. I would, I would add to that that uh, we could have a humility going forward when we're active in politics. That is to say, we re I think we should recognize that there's hardly any political decision, any law that's passed any policy that's uh, inaugurated that will not have mixed blessings in the end. It may solve problem A pretty well, 
but uh, my reading of history is that it's already starting to create problem B and C. It's a never-ending process. There is no time when we're going to actually come up with a set of laws and a set of policies that's going to solve anything, everything, until Jesus brings his kingdom. That doesn't mean we don't continue to try to fix the one thing we're trying to fix, but also recognize in humility there's a fair chance that this solution is going to lead to some problems down the road that the next generation is going to have to handle. And there's no sense in me getting all puffed up and prideful about it and thinking that this is the, the end of history. Mark Lilla wrote a book called The Shipwrecked Mind, where he's looking at conservatism. He's got a place in the book where he says that St. Augustine's view of history that Christians ought to embrace should keep you from either the utopianism of liberalism and the nostalgia of conservatism. So what he says is liberals tend to be utopian and feel like everything in the past was horrible. And only if we, through politics, will we be able to bring about a really just society. So they said liberals tend to put the stakes of politics up just way too high and say, this is how we're going to be saved, basically, because everything's terrible unless we put into place these political solutions that will finally solve injustice. Conservatives, he said, instead of looking to the future and being utopian, they tend to look to the past to some golden age, say it was better in the past. Things are horrible now. We used to be better. And what they do is they either are not political at all, feeling like it's all hopeless, or they also get into power politics where they just say we, anything to stop the, the forward motion of liberalism, anything at all. Then Lilith says what, what St. Augustine says, city of God, that there's two cities and they're at war. And in the end, the city of God is going to win. But he says what it means is it keeps Christians from being utopian because in the end, politics is not going to bring in the city of God. But it also keeps you from being too, frankly, pessimistic because the fact is that, that the kingdom of God is here and it's, history is moving in the direction of peace and justice. And I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. And that, I think that that's the best answer, though. It's probably a little bit esoteric, maybe, Morgan, to your question of how high should the stakes be. The answer is not too high, not too low. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is sponsored in part by Men Unplugged, a Christ-centered talk show. Its hosts, Jeff Jarena and well-known Christian leaders, offer practical solutions for the issues facing men and their families today. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Great, Morgan. Thanks for having me on the show today. I really do appreciate it. How did you become passionate about serving and reaching and ministering to men? Men so often think that we can take care of our issues on our own, and we leave the most important individual out of it. We keep the Lord out of it. He's the one that has a solution. From 26 to 30 years old, I was severely depressed. I mean, almost every other day I had suicide thoughts. And somebody shared the gospel with me. And I placed my faith in Christ, and it was 180 degrees running to Jesus instead of running away. And he said, okay, now what I want you to do is go tell other men all the lies that you've been believing from Satan. At the time, I didn't want to be around anybody. I was ashamed of myself. I just didn't feel like God loved me. I didn't feel like, you know, I was worthy of love. So I kind of battled with that. I finally said, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And I went, and it was a group of men. And I just started telling these men how Christ radically changed my life. And these men, they just started to get hope. You know, they're like, man, if God can do that for you, He can do the same thing for me. From that, I've been doing men's ministry now for 17 years. For more information, go to menunplugged.net. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, 
a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Yeah, so let's go back to something else that you had written in this piece, which said, Christians cannot pretend they transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. And I specifically was thinking of this example of slavery that you brought up and the way that we've told American history. I just say that because obviously there's some sifting of priorities when we decide we're going to tell history later on. Slavery is definitely the the seminal issue slash sin of American history that has happened. And so in some ways it makes sense to use that as an example of something that is going to be really a shock if, if churches decide that they don't have to talk about it. During the 1850s, though, we know that there were still a lot of atrocities going on with Native Americans. Um, this was the height of colonialism. There was, at different times, anti-immigration sentiment that was also going on. You know, in many ways, we, we had a, a slew of human rights issues that we could have spoken out of on if we were at the church. My, I guess my question is, in this idea of like just preaching the gospel, again, how are you deciding which issues to speak out upon and which ones really need your utmost concern? You wonder, how could they not have seen that? The middle to the end of the 1800s, the Western powers like carved up Africa. They just showed up. It's like something like what, from 1850 to 1890, people just showed up in Africa and just, just took parts of it, just took it over. Why wouldn't the church speak out about that? Or maybe some people did, but not many. So you say, how could you have missed that? Which makes you worry, what are we missing now, right? Evangelical Christianity, arguably, and Catholic Christianity, are the only truly world religions. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism are still, roughly speaking, confined to certain parts of the world. Christianity actually is, is the only one that spreads so widely. And as we all know, somewhere between 60 and 80 percent, depending on whether you, who you believe, of evangelical Pentecostal Christians in the world are non-white. And what's fun about that, and I do mean fun, because it's always fun when you really get a lot of people together, people that have the same high view of Scripture, the belief in the, the necessity of the new birth, that you're only saved through Christ's blood, not the good works and all that. You get them together, they feel that bond in Christ, and then you talk about politics. You're going to get such different perspectives, because they're coming from such different places, and yet, because we have that common faith in Christ, we actually can listen to each other and maybe even be a little more respectful of each other. And it's been there that I have been able to see things that in my white American maleness, I was a bit blind to or, or very blind to. So I would say if there, was, if there was way, way better regular sustained dialogue 
between evangelical thinkers, leaders, Christians, churches around the world about political issues, we'd all be way, way better off because we all are blind to where we are. You know, the old, uh, I guess it was David Foster Wallace started his famous commencement address saying, if you ask a fish about the water, the fish will say, what's water? And that when you're in a culture, you can't see it. You just can't. And therefore, Christians are, are human, so we get stuck in our time and our place. But we've got an ability to do something. I mean, most Americans just don't have that. They don't have the ability to talk to somebody that they know is my brother or my sister who comes from a very different position and might have a different perspective. So we've got the resources to maybe avoid the horrible blindness that the church has had in the past because it was more culturally isolated. I was a pastor for 10 years. Uh, like Tim, had to preach every week. And I think one of the things that uh, occurred to me is that, yeah, it's one of our responsibilities as a preacher to preach uh, about poverty, for example, the need for Christians to attend to poverty. It seems to be a major theme of Scripture. The preaching is about our call to alleviate poverty, recognizing that people in the congregation might have two or three different ideas about the best way to do that. For some, they'll say, no, we just need to increase the power and extent of the welfare state. That's the way to end poverty. Other people will say, no, we need to invest in the economy and create more jobs, cut taxes so that more people can invest in new businesses. Those are two prudential, pragmatic ways of solving the problem. And in some areas of American history, one, one of those uh, solutions has worked better than the other. They've t- kind of taken turns. So I think as a church, you can say we need to address this issue, that issue, immigration, uh, poverty, uh, racism. What is the best, even abortion, what is the best way forward? Uh, we, can, we can decidedly say abortion is a sin and a great evil. Uh, do you do that by passing a constitutional amendment? Is that going to really make the problem, solve the problem for the long term? Or is it better to work at the local pregnancy clinic? Is that the best way to attack the problem? I think, I think we can preach the justice issue without necessarily stepping into the area of pragmatics, which are often fuzzy and hard to figure out, but which we end up each individually making a stand on. That's pretty nuanced of you, Mark, because, I mean, that's a very big distinction between here's the Bible says abortion is a sin. I think you can say, well, the Bible says a number of places it gives every indication that that to uh, kill a child in the womb is wrong. As soon as you say, what should public policy be in a democracy and in a pluralistic democracy? What should public policy be? Immediately, you're getting to the area of wisdom and prudence, and the Bible doesn't speak directly to it. Uh, that's one. That's one advantage I got in my Presbyterianism. Excuse me, if I can toot my horn. Is Westminster Confession, Chapter Twenty, Liberty of Conscience, where it says, "Where the Bible has not bound a person's conscience, uh, the church cannot step out there and, and bind it." So, if I can say, "You as a Christian should not abort your child," but as soon as people start to say, "This is what our public policy should be. This is how the this is how the law should." should go. As soon as we get there, we say, you know what, Christians might have different views on that, because the Bible doesn't speak directly to it. And that's, a lot of people don't want to do that nuance, but it's crucial, and I do mention it in that article, yes, it's very important. So one thing that we wanted to bring up today was just the fact that there's a large sense of fatigue and exhaustion that many Americans feel because of this endless news cycle that we are in, and by the stakes that we have attached to all of this And I'm wondering, Tim, you know, you live in New York City. You lived there for some time. That city alone exhausts many people, not me, but I I know many people who do feel exhausted by it. Yeah. You know, you have pastored in a congregation that includes many movers and shakers, some of them who are actively making the news. Can you tell us a little bit about how you consume and follow the news? 
Yeah, I'll tell you. I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal because one is sort of center left, one center right, even though some people might argue that they're not all that center left and center right anymore. I've always done that. Believe it or not, when I was a teenager, I would follow the Vietnam War two ways. I would actually listen to Radio Moscow. And I would also listen to um, Voice of America on my shortwave radio. Does anybody remember shortwave radio? Oh, my gosh. Bringing back the memories. Holy cow. (laughs) Of course. And it was in English, of course. It was beamed to us in Voice of America. So one day they would say, Voice of America would say, today 10,000 more American troops landed in Vietnam. And Radio Moscow would say 10,000 American troops uh, uh, invaded Vietnam. They would just say it differently. And that's where I began to say, oh, there's a couple different ways of reading this. It was also interesting that when there was a battle, their reports on the casualties were completely different, completely different. Wow. Uh, Moscow would always give you far more Americans died than the Americans would say. And I remember thinking, yeah, either either both sides are lying or one side's lying, but they can't both be telling the truth. It didn't make me cynical exactly. I mean, that's the good thing. If politics was everything, if I didn't believe in the city of God, and in the end, you know, peace and justice and God is going to triumph, I'd get a lot more cynical. But I'm I'm just careful. So I try to read both sides. I've always tried to do that. I do think that today, most of the folks, a lot of younger Christians I talk to don't do that because they can't stand to read the other side. But you really ought to regularly read people with a very, very different interpretation. And it doesn't make you cynical. I usually find it that when I, when I put the two together, I have a better idea of what probably is happening. So I used to read Dissent magazine. It's a socialist magazine and the Village Voice. And I used to read the National Review and the Weekly Standard, which are very, very, very conservative. And I always made sure I read all four of those every week. And it was it was a little strong medicine. But generally, after I read both sides, I could sort of get a better idea of what I think was happening. I didn't get cynical. So that's what I do. Do you even make an attempt to keep up with the 24-7 news cycle that we're in? Not really. That's different. Look, you're going to find websites online that say that Tim Keller gets money from George Soros. Would you like to confirm or deny now? (laughs) I would like to to deny that. (laughs) Okay, it's on the record. Well, look, you know, you can see this website that looks like a news. It says breaking news, da-da-da. And then you look over here at another website, and they all look the same. Uh, Even though one site doesn't have any sources for their news, they're just saying it or is a suspicion and others have sources. So I tend to say if I if it's in print, if it's actually something I put in my hands, I'm willing to trust it more than what I read online. I don't trust what I read online. I I know that if it's something that actually gets into print, I know I know you can say you're a dinosaur. But think about this. If it's something that gets into print, then I know that there's some gatekeepers, there's some peer review. There's it's just harder to get the words onto the page than it is to get them up on a, on a website. I don't trust necessarily the sourcing and I don't trust the, uh, you know, the background. So frankly, I, I would much rather read things that actually are printed. Anything we do online that's a response to something that's happened or something that's been said, we do feel a tremendous pressure to get up something as soon as possible. And so uh, the value of the uh, timeliness becomes more important sometimes than a thorough vetting. Uh, not, and I wouldn't say we, we don't ever publish anything we think is wrong, but we, we realize if we, if we wait two or three weeks to say something on it, mo- no one's going to read it. No one's going to read our view of it. In the old days, you certainly wanted circulation. And there was always a bit of a danger of the yellow journalism thing where you say things that you know are going to get people to. You're really not reporting the news. You're really just trying to sell papers. 
But I do think, as you know, that's gotten worse online, where people, everybody looks at, uh, the reality is, I wrote for the New York Times, I wrote for the New Yorker last year, they know how many clicks I got. And so I know that if, if I go back to them with another opinion piece, they're going to look and say, oh, it made it up for number one or two. Is that wrong of them? Probably not. But I don't like the direction. I don't trust journalism as much as I used to. And I think that's true of everybody. And it's partly because I do think the online 24-hour news cycle, social media uh, kind of hybrid things that look like news, but they're not, has all undermined our trust in what I see out there. So from this breadth of ideas that you read from, are those the things that have formed the basis for your political convictions? Probably. The reason I tend to be moderate in my political views, I would say, or centrist, most people would say, is probably because I have been so, I think, diligent in not reading one side. And I think it went all the way back to listening to Radio Moscow and Voice of America in those early days saying, even though I really believe that, you know, Voice of America was was far more truthful than Radio Moscow, and I had every reason to believe it. Mean, Radio Moscow wasn't run by a democracy and Voice of America represented a democracy. I still could tell that there was spin. I could still tell that there was stuff going on there. I think if you actually do listen to both sides, they have good points, weirdly enough. <laughs> I mean, why would they why wouldn't one side have gone away unless they had good points? And I think that's one of the reasons why it probably pushes me in the center. The other thing is my wife thinks because I was an oldest child is the reason I'm more moderate and I want to please everybody. But I really shouldn't say that on the podcast. Out there <laughs> okay. world. I just finished reading an issue of the American Conservative, which is a big champion of what's called Berkeley and conservative classic conservatism. And I went to a friend's house and she had a socialist journal on her coffee table. And I read that and I was actually surprised at how many things they agreed upon. So that's the other thing that's sometimes surprising when you read real diverse views. There are many areas they actually believe in alike, but you wouldn't think uh, you'd find that. And I think if we could have conversations with one another nationally and in our churches, we'd find, oh my gosh, you, you really do, you do agree with me on that. That's amazing. So within this kind of centrist framework that you've developed over your life, I'm sure there have also been times where you have felt that those political convictions that you have have also been tested or strained. Can you share a little bit about one or two of those beliefs that have been challenged? No. <laughs> no, you won't? No. <laughs> it sounds really weird, Morgan. No, not that I, I was tested and I won't tell you, but I, I'm having troubles. You see, here's the thing. Because I've always been careful, I can tell you only one. In, in, that, in my article, I mentioned a story of a man from Mississippi who went to the Highlands of Scotland and found that super conservative Presbyterians up there were also very left wing when it came to politics. OK, I heard about that man through a, a Scottish minister up there who told me about it. But I had a similar experience back in the early 90s when I first started going to the United Kingdom to, to, to preach and teach and found so many of the evangelicals there were labor, not Tory. They were they were more liberal in their viewpoints, pro-union. I, I did tend to think that theological conservatism meant political conservatism, and they said no. I wouldn't say that was a political view, but that, that tested my American belief. I, the reason I brought the, the Mississippi man up, it was a little more stark, and I, it's always better to bring somebody else in rather than you. <laughs> but I would say no. I, I don't think I've moved around that much. I, this sounds really weird. My political views at the age of 21 and my views now are actually, you could ask my wife to check me out. I'm not lying. Pretty much the same. That's kind of weird. In other words, believe it or not, you are actually a hardcore moderate. <laughs> yeah, when you say I'm a political moderate, 
I, you, from one standpoint, yes, I look like a political moderate because over the years, if you actually looked at my voting record, I generally would be voting for either moderate Democrats or moderate Republicans. But the Christian political views on things like same-sex marriage and race and that sort of thing actually seem extreme to somebody. And therefore, you'll never look like a moderate to most people. Politically, you will not look like a moderate, especially not today. One group or the other will say, you're really on that side. And so people don't see you as a moderate. But here's where I'd like to argue Christians really should still be moderates. The book of Jude actually has a little verse that's actually a command. It says, be merciful to them that doubt, which is an amazing statement because people who doubt the faith are lost. And yet, and, and maybe you could even say enemies of the truth, but, but we're supposed to be merciful to people. I'm moderate because when I see a person with a different political view, I say they mean well, they make a lot of good points, they're partly right, but they're, they're partly wrong or even mainly wrong, but I treat them with respect and I don't write them off. But if, in, on the other hand, I look at a person with a different point of view and I say, you're evil, you're, you're what's wrong with the world, see, that's, that's the thing I don't think a Christian can do. So in a certain sense, a Christian who knows we're all sinners saved by grace uh, knows that all human beings are, are, are mixtures of the, you're in the image of God, but you're fallen. Uh, we're going to be moderate in the way in which we treat our opponents. And we're, ten- we're even going to be moderate in the sense that we probably don't fit into either the Democratic or Republican Party right now. But that's all I mean by moderate. It doesn't really mean that I'm somehow wishy-washy centrist. It, 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 it has to do with attitude. It has to do with the spectrum of our views. We don't actually really have a great word in our American political taxonomy, I guess, to kind of describe what that is. I think that's actually an an issue that we have when we're talking about these types of nuances where people fit in. As a quick example, a great new book called um, Doctrine and Race by a woman named Matthews. It's basically about the uh, black church in the 20th century, how the black church was theologically conservative, but progressive and liberal in many of its uh, social teachings. And she starts off this way. She says, in 2008, something like 90% of all African Americans in California voted for Barack Obama, and something like 75% of them voted for Proposition 8, that marriage is only for a man and a woman. And she says, if, if that shocked you, and of course it shocked a lot of people, uh, you're just misunderstanding the fact that the black church basically is a combination of theological conservatism and uh, you know, political liberalism. And then if you even look at Catholic social teaching, we all know that. Catholic social teaching is this, also this very strange amalgam, which gives me some assurance and confidence that uh, Christianity actually leads to somewhat diverse positions that don't really fit in with the political party alignments right now. One small subnote just to say that, you know, it's only strange if you think that, like, somehow the litany of political issues that make up one of these parties actually make ideologically coherent sense to each other and weren't just kind of cobbled together alliances of convenience and do not have to be swallowed whole. I wanted to just read something that conservative commentator Eric Erickson had tweeted earlier this week because we had talked about you being located in New York City, Tim. And he said, as I see all the people preening about the massive numbers living in urban areas and how superior urban areas are, I'm reminded there's a theology of cities and very little of it is good. In scripture, the first cities were built by Cain and his descendants. So, Tim, we know that your theology has been extremely influenced by your location in New York City 
how does that theology translate into how you view and understand Christian interaction in politics? Eric Erickson is half right. I mean, as a person who studied the theology of the city in the Bible over the years, what's interesting is in the early part of the Bible, cities look pretty bad. Cain built the first cities. Sodom and Gomorrah uh, are cities that are, uh, you know, Abraham and Lot, they divide and Lot goes to live in the cities and Abraham goes to live out in the country. And Lot goes into the cities and his family becomes corrupt and the cities are destroyed. So early on, cities don't look very good. But then when uh, Israel comes back into Canaan, God commands them to build cities. He commands them. And they were actually called cities of refuge. But the point was that if somebody uh, killed somebody accidentally, you needed a place where there'd be jurisprudence, where there'd be a place where people actually didn't just do blood feuds, but they actually made decisions about what justice was, you know, what, what should be just. And so God created those cities as places where civitas, where city, cityness, where civilization would grow. And by the time you get to uh, uh, the Psalms, Jerusalem is held up as a, an urban witness to the world. It's supposed to be the joy of the whole earth. It's supposed to be what a city can look like under the lordship of, of the true God. And by the time you get all the way to the New Testament, cities are lifted up as the places where people go the disciples and Paul go to um, do mission. And so, therefore, the point is, the Bible's view of the city is highly realistic, and yet in the end, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to love cities, and we're supposed to go there for mission, but we also know that they're, they're places of great evil, too. Or another way to put it here is in, in, a, in a nutshell. Cities are magnifiers and accumulators of whatever's in the human heart. So they bring out the worst in us, human evil, and they also bring out the best in us, and they're places of great cultural production. The Bible's view of cities is not negative, but it's not incredibly beautiful and positive. I, I think I have the reputation for saying cities are wonderful. I didn't say that. I said God loves cities. He says so. He tells Jonah, to, why, why don't you love this city, this massive place of people who don't know their right hand from their left? How can you not have compassion on it? So Eric is half right. And I wouldn't say, by the way, my that my view of cities changed when I got to New York. I really developed the theology of the city before I got here. Yeah, another factor in the early church, I know, was that the hardest places to evangelize in the early centuries was in the rural areas. And actually, the people in the cities were much more open to hearing and accepting the gospel. So there were some pragmatic realities there as well. Wayne Meeks wrote that in the first Urban Christians. He said that cities are places of change, so people are more open to new ideas whereas the rural areas are places of tradition, and, and therefore Christians went to cities because people are more open to new ideas. And I still think that's right, actually, uh, though, you know, it, like everything in academia, that's, it's been contested. So when you think about American Christians and their involvement in politics, what grieves you the most and what brings you the most hope as you look at them? Well, it does feel to me right now, what grieves me the most, is it feels to me an awful lot of older evangelicals have hitch their wagon too much to political conservatism as if it's the only Christian option. And an awful lot of, I see, younger evangelicals are actually reacting to that and almost hitching Christianity to a kind of progressive political agenda as if it's the only true one. I really think when you look at the black church, when you look at Catholic social teaching, and if you look at uh, evangelicals around the world, they, they really, they're not just an extension of the Democratic or Republican Party. So do I get hope? Yeah, I actually do. I'd, I'd rather not name names. I see movements, both inside the Democratic Party and inside the Republican Party. I actually see movements of people, usually believers, who are trying to be salt and light in their parties, and they're trying to uh, 
you know, not not follow the idols of their parties, but really just try to be wise. Generally, Christians that show up in the Democratic Party in general feel like they're in tune sort of with the, the Democratic idea of government. Republican Christians tend to go usually in the direction of smaller government and more private market uh, solutions. But inside, they, they hold the same views. I do see them out there. I'm not going to mention names. I'm not going to mention any figures because I don't feel like I'm sure enough of everybody. But I, I see a little bit of hope right now. But by and large, if you, to be honest with you, on the political realm, all I do is think about Matthew 16, where it says, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's when I get really confident. Well, thank you so much, Tim. This was a great conversation. It was really great to talk to you about something that we know that you've given a lot of thought to, and that is exactly the type of stuff that we try to do on this show, is to challenge our readers with context and nuance. So anyone who has a reaction to our show, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. You can also find us on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and we ask everyone here to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Mark already kind of teased his, I'm assuming, uh, No, beginning. I won't use that because it's expected now, so I'll try something different. I'm sure you did something else that was fun in New Orleans, I though. I did. I did a lot of walking in New Orleans because we got a bed and breakfast within a couple blocks of my uh, son-in-law and daughter and grandson. And so we didn't ride a car, and so different parts of the day, uh, mom and grandma and the baby would go off, and I would just go walk to find a restaurant or... Anyway, I did a lot of walking around the neighborhoods of New Orleans, uh, Mid-City and uh, Treme. And it did give me pause to think, like uh, Tim has said, just uh, thinking about God's love for this city. Uh, It's a city that obviously has a lot of pain and poverty. A lot of people walking the streets glazed. Uh, They're either on drugs or they're just not mentally all there. A lot of people hobbling, literally hobbling, either on crutches or in wheelchairs. Uh, So there is a fair amount of, you could see it, there's a fair amount of suffering going on there. And just thinking and and thinking about how God looks on this city. And I'm praying for the, the churches have tremendous uh, challenges there to respond to this, this population. So that was, it was a precious moment, not in the sense that it made me happy and joyful, but just, it just gave me a deep sense of profound sense of the awe of being in a place that God loves and the immensity of what that what might look like. That's great. Where can people find your thoughts when they're not listening to this show? They can check out something called the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. I link to, to me, are the better articles of the week, and then make comment on them. And you can get that by going to christianitytoday.com slash the Galley Report. All right, Tim. Well, we just had a, a weekend here. We basically have a project that we're doing at Redeemer City to City in which we're trying to see about 277 churches started in the city over the next 10 years, which we think will just about triple uh, the size of the body of Christ uh, here in the center of the city. This is the third year we've done it. And the first two years, we were just basically saying, this is a mission we ought to try uh, to do. Whether we can do it or not, it doesn't matter. It's It's necessary that we we at least try. And this year, it we just turned a corner, and we've just seen a whole lot of new leaders pop up and new churches pop up, and and it was uh, it was sort of thrilling. And I'm not one to cry, and I actually didn't quite cry, but I almost did this weekend. You came close. Yeah, I came close just just because of the um, they're mainly younger leaders who don't have much hope for the church, and 
And almost all of them are somewhat alienated from their own denominations and backgrounds, but they're trying to start new churches that are not, they're not reactive, they're not angry. Um, they're just trying to uh, do the things that they really think the church ought to be doing, and a lot of them are getting it done. So it's a, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it was a lovely moment for me. I think that you tweet from time to time. So where can people find you on Twitter? It's Tim Keller NYC, though I, I need to warn people that I, you know, it's robo-tweeting, meaning I just take, I take quotes from my books and things, put it on there, and one pops out a day. And I do very little in the way of interaction. I know that disappoints people on Twitter, but uh, I don't think Twitter is a good place for interactions anyway. But that's where you can find me, Tim Keller NYC at Twitter. I think you also kind of spout out about your hatred of broccoli. Is that correct? Is that broccoli that you don't like? Yes. I, the trouble is that my wife still, I still have to eat it. I just don't like it. Well, you're not completely sanctified yet. That's the problem. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the last thing. When I get it into my 80s, I, that's my la- it'll be the last major you know, spiritual hurdle, I think. Okay. We'll keep you in our prayers. <laughs> All right. My precious moment is very aptly set in New York City, where I had a chance to go to last Friday. Mm. And I feel like I had a summation of the, the breadth of things that you can do in New York City when I not only went to the last day of the General Assembly at the United Nations, where I had a chance to interview the Hungarian foreign minister and listeners of the show will actually get to read this interview and an upcoming issue of CT. But I also met the person who was not the bachelorette this season, but the season before on she, her car was valeted right outside the coffee shop that I was working at. <laughs> so, you know, what, what do you not love about New York City when you can meet a reality TV star and a famous politician in the same day? All right. People can keep up with me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Thank you, everyone, for supporting the podcast. Again, there's multiple ways that you can do that. Those of you that want to give, you can do so at morect.com slash podcast. That's morect.com slash podcast. Again, rating and reviewing the show is also a great way to support the show, and we invite you to do that on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who has done that. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. There is theme music by Sweeps. We will see you all next week. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.